If you're dealing with an information overload, turn to WITF's news podcast, The Morning Agenda, each weekday. You can find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, on the WITF YouTube channel or the NPR One app. Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC. Choose UPMC for your family's health care needs close to home. Visit UPMC.com slash Central PA for a complete list of services and locations. It seems there's a mass shooting in in America every few weeks. Stories of killing sprees or serial killers are commonplace on TV and in movies and books today. But it wasn't always that way. There had to be a first at a time when multiple murders were new to a broad audience. Best-selling author Harry McLean points to a gruesome series of murders in Nebraska and Wyoming in January 1958 as that point. 19-year-old Charles Starkweather, accompanied by his 14-year-old girlfriend Carol Ann Fugate, shot and stabbed 10 people to death over an eight-day period. In all, Starkweather murdered 11 people. McLean's recently published book is titled Starkweather, The Untold Story of the Killing Spree That Changed America. Harry McLean is with us on The Spark today. Mr. McLean, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. So before we get into the murders themselves, tell us about Charles Starkweather. Charlie was was uh, the second out of eight children. He was born in 1938 to a poor family in Lincoln, Nebraska. He was slightly under five foot five. He had thick, flaming red hair. He was bow-legged, and he was pigeon-toed and had a lisp. In spite of all that, he bore an uncanny resemblance to, to James Dean. But in his childhood, Charlie was ridiculed and mocked mercilessly by other students in his class and throughout the whole school, actually. He was taunted uh, for his red hair, for his bow legs. Uh, people made fun of him when they got up to talk in class. When he got up, he was so traumatized by it all, he couldn't speak. This went on till about seventh grade. In seventh grade, <clears throat> it is, he came home one day and his father saw him in tears and said, what happened? He told him, he said, look, from now on out, don't put up with it, just smack him. That was the turning point in Charlie's life. Uh, from that point on, he started fighting. I, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. My older brother was in school with Charlie. And he used to tell about the fights that Charlie got in. He would pick him, he would start him, and he would, by and large, finish him. He would pick on people a lot larger than he was because he had a, an anger or a rage that fueled him to fight way beyond kind of the ordinary bounds of, of schoolyard fighting at that time. If somebody went down, he would, he would kick him, kick him in the stomach, kick him in the head. That, as he grew older... Through high school, he developed a real reputation in Lincoln as somebody that you did not fool with. That rage ended up kind of turning into a fantasy uh, as he got into his mid-teens about becoming an outlaw. And um, that eventually was the combination of the rage and this fantasy of being 
an outlaw with a gang that ended up setting him down this trail to the 11 murders that you just described. Mm-hmm. So Carol <coughs> Fugate, talk about her, her four, his 14-year-old girlfriend in 1958. Carol was also <coughs> excuse me, quite small. She was um, under five feet. And at the time of the trial, or trial, she came in at 95 pounds. She was tiny, a tiny kid. And she met Charlie when she had just turned 13. He was 17. And she ran with him for about, uh, so about a year and a half until this, these incidents took place. She came also from a very, very poor family in Lincoln. She lived in a bad, what we would call the bad side of town. And uh, her dad was a drunk, and he was violent, and he was a pedophile. And Carol ended up, they kept getting kicked out of places. He, he seldom worked, get kicked out of apartments. She went to six schools in five years. So she was very dis, dislocated um, and traumatized by a real rough childhood. Her mother, they got divorced. She finally, her mother married a pretty decent guy who couldn't make much money, but at least they settled down a little bit until she ran in to Charlie Starkweather. She was kind of a sitting duck for Charlie. That's not my phrase. I've, uh, s- some psychologists use that to describe a girl who has been so traumatized and so treated so badly by the males in her life that she's a sitting duck for someone like Charlie who comes along and says, you're, you're the most important person in my life. So she was 14, she claims to have broken up with Charlie right before the killing spree began. Whether that's uh, true or not, they, they did break up a lot, like most teenagers. But whether she was done with them or not is, is highly uh, un- unclear to me. But she did go on on the um, spree with Charlie. Her involvement uh, is subject to great debate, in, in which I spend a lot of time dealing with in the book. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that killing spree. January 21st to January 29th, 1958. <clears throat> what happened during that period? I know it's um, hard to summarize uh, 10 murders, but uh, what happened during that, that little over a week? It started with Charlie killing uh, her mother, her stepfather, and her little two-and-a-half-year-old sister in their house. Uh, That was on a Tuesday. And the question is, was Carol there for that killing? I'll I'll leave that aside, but that's the issue. Charlie says initially that she wasn't there. Carol says she wasn't there, that she came home and her parents were gone, and Charlie told them he had a that they were hostages. In any event, Charlie did did kill them the, that, that day. There's no question about that. And he moved them in some out some uh, back house houses houses out beyond the in the yard. And um, it was January in, in Nebraska, so they froze to death. And they stayed in the house for six days after that. Uh, they ended up leaving when Carol's grandmother came and claimed if she couldn't get in, she was going to call the police. And uh, so they split, and she did bring the police there. They looked around the house and didn't find anything unusual and did not find the bodies. Carol and Charlie moved on um, to a small town called Bennett, about 20 miles south of Nebraska, of, of Lincoln, I'm sorry. And there they killed a farmer that was a friend of Charlie's. 
and took his rifles and um, their car got stuck in the mud. They were picked up by a couple teenagers. Charlie ended up shooting both of them to death with August Meyer, his friend, with his 22. Um, that happened late at night of actually Wednesday, what would be Wednesday morning. They then went uh, to back to Lincoln and in the morning uh, went into a, the, the house of a very prominent family in Lincoln and killed um, the husband and his wife and the maid. They then fled Lincoln heading for the West Coast and were caught in uh, Douglas, Wyoming, after they had killed a traveling salesman there to get his car. The big, a big chase in, ensued where the cops were chasing Charlie through the Badlands, shooting at him. He finally stopped, and uh, they had also picked up Carol by that point, and they put Charlie in arrest, under arrest and put him in the uh, jail in, in, in Douglas, Wyoming. So the Reign of Terror was over about 4 o'clock Wednesday afternoon. So the big question that we ask nowadays when there's a mass shooting, and I'm sure the same question came up in 1958, why? Now, there were reasons why, as you describe in the book, there had been a fight amongst uh, Carol Carol Ann's uh, parents, stepfather and uh, mother, uh, but with the others. Why did he kill them? It it was it was th- this was the kind of the brand new aspect to murders in in this country. Prior to this, with few exceptions, uh, most murders were involved. Uh, they were domestic incidences, or somebody was robbing a bank, or there was a disagreement between two people. Charlie introduced the idea of random murders, killing for the sake of killing, for the sake of how it would. You know, it would make you feel when it was all over. He shot people that he didn't need to shoot uh, and killed people that he didn't need to kill. And this opened the door to what is now, in my view, what is now commonplace, which is the random shooting. Most of the mass murders that we have today are random. Not all of them are, but uh, most of them are in churches or um, grocery stores or schools where somebody is shooting people that they don't know. And this was the first incident of that, and in, in my view, kind of opened the door to the type of sociopath, sociopathology, which is kill people that you that you have no grudge against because it will uh, it will relieve your anger or your illness uh, and make you, in the end, feeling better about being alive. One of the aspects of this that was new in 1958 is television. And this case got national attention. What role did TV play in everyone in the country knowing about this? It played a huge role, and it was the first time that that had happened. By 1958, 85% of the people in the country had had television. Uh, It was mainly news and little sitcoms and you know, police shows, there, 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 there had not yet been coverage of a live violent situation. This happened here because 
for where a lottery is one. You had a you had a young boy and a young girl, kind of like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, you had the murders going on over a series of days, which allowed television to hook into it and cover it uh, nightly. Huntley and Brinkley, which were the major newscasters of the day, national newscasters out of New York, covered it every night. I've seen the clips. So that it, it gradually caught on with the whole country saying, well, they're back in Lincoln. No, they're back in Wyoming. No, they're back in Lincoln. We've got so many killings. And they had just developed the ability for the national networks to connect with their local affiliates in Lincoln. So the local reporter in Lincoln was was reporting live around the country. So the country could see Charlie come out of the courthouse in handcuffs. Um, and it was it was a mesmerizing. I've gone back and looked. It was a mesmerizing experience. And the, the difference, the impact was partially because now Charlie and Carol were in your living room. They were in your dining room. They were alive. You could see them. And they had pictures of the of the crime itself. And it brought a new kind of reality to violence um, for the average citizen in, in, in the country. As a matter of fact, it got covered worldwide. There were, there were reporters from London and Japan and France there, but it was the uh, it was the beginning of the unholy alliance between television and violence. Mm. Starkweather changed his story multiple times, saying that Fugate didn't kill anyone at first, and then he changed his story and said he called her the most bloodthirsty person he ever knew. Why did he change his story so much? It was almost like he was playing with the authorities. Well, I think that's the, there's a couple explanations, and that's that's definitely one of them. Charlie confessed to the, all of the crimes right after he was murdered. He even confessed to one that they didn't know about. They didn't connect him with, which had taken place in November of '57. And he just he just told the details and confessed to all eleven crimes within a, within a couple hours of being arrested. And he said Carol had nothing to do with it. I'd leave her out of it. And as time went on, he changed each one of those stories and made her deny that she was a hostage and, and had her participate in four or five of the murders in one way or another, and very explicitly. Uh, now, if you go back and look at the context and what Charlie was saying, it certainly does look like he was just having fun. Uh, he would confuse, you know, he would confuse the prosecutor. He would confuse, he would confuse the judge because the story would change in mid telling uh, through the whole thing in an uproar. He was completely prepared to die. He, he had no problem going to the electric chair at all. I mean, for him and his fantasy of being an outlaw, that was a, that was a great way to go. But he was going to have fun on the way out. And I think he also, for the fantasy to be complete, he needed Carol to go with him. Uh, you know, the boy and the girl had to both go down for this story to play out the right way in his, in his mind. So when he turned on her, and he kept giving more information to the prosecutor during her trial about her level of involvement, what she'd done and what she said, I think it was because he wanted her uh, to also be subject to the death penalty. Mm. Just think about that, uh, and you do, you write about this, but in 1958, charging a 14-year-old girl, very petite, as you mentioned, with murder, and she was possibly facing the death penalty, something that hadn't been dealt with before. Much of your book, as you said, focuses on Carol Fugate, 
she was only charged with uh, two felonies and found guilty of one. What happened? What what was she charged with, and what was she found guilty of? Um, the couple that they ended up killing outside of ben, Bennett, the two teenagers, uh, she, she, both she and Charlie were charged with the same crime, and that was murdering the boy that they killed and then also the felony murder because they stole money from his wallet um and then and then murdered him so you had those two charges they were both involved with the with the death of of uh bobby jensen uh charlie was convicted of both she was convicted just of the felony murder there was no indication that she actually killed bobby jensen or had anything to do with it but she did take the money from the wallet and give it to charlie so there's the felony and that's that's a felony murder. But let me just say, they were so determined to get Carol, the prosecutor, uh, that they had. I've seen the memo. They had the other murders lined up, surely lined up. If they missed on the first one, they were gonna they were gonna charge her with killing Bobby Jensen's girlfriend. If they missed on that, they were gonna charge her with killing the maid in the ward house. She was going down one way or another. They basically charged her with one that was probably the easiest to prove. If she went to trial today, a conviction wouldn't be certain because of how she was interrogated. Without a lawyer, she was drugged up. Uh, and, you know, we look at that today and say, well, that wouldn't even be called a technicality today. That would be something that uh, under Miranda just wouldn't happen, right? That's absolutely correct. She was interrogated for kind of depends on how you define the term interrogation, but because uh, she was driven back from, from Wyoming to Lincoln and she was talked to during that time period. And then she was also formally interrogated uh, on the record. And 14 years old, no sophistication, never outside of Lincoln. She couldn't even tell the difference between a prosecutor and a defense attorney. She keeps kind of confusing who is who in the deal. And they have skilled skilled interrogators there that put her on the record. And uh, that document that ended up coming from her interrogation is what convicts her because she just kind of admitted to what she did in the felony murder. Uh, and without that, they really had no evidence other than what Charlie was saying. Well, you, can, you simply could not convict anybody on Charlie's testimony because it changed constantly. So her conviction was based on her on the document resulting from her in interrogation and, and backing up a little bit. I don't think she would be charged with murder today. Not, not at 14 without any direct implication of her having stabbed somebody or shot somebody. Uh, and what we know about where the brain is development wise for a 14 year old and the effect of childhood trauma on the brain and the, the ability to make decisions uh, to flee or not to flee I, I don't even think I don't I don't really think she would be charged at all. I think she would be. I mean, her, her family is now dead. She's got nobody left. And uh, so that's another trauma she had to deal with. But I think I think today she would be dealt with uh, unless they actually had her stabbing somebody or shooting somebody as as a victim herself. We only have about 90 seconds left in the book. You conclude that Carol Ann Fugate was actually innocent. 65 years later, how did you do that? Uh, I'm a former judge myself, and I looked at the evidence, the evidence, the facts, not the speculation, 
uh, not the guesswork, not the inferences about what she did and what she didn't do, but the facts, the actual facts themselves, and applied trauma psychology to her and uh, as if we were conducting the trial today and what we know about brain science. And based on the facts and the trauma psychology applied to her, uh, I would find that, she, that there, there, there was not sufficient evidence to even charge her, much less to convict her. So I would, that was the basis for me finding her innocent. I sat as a judge and looked at the facts. Mm. About 45 seconds, we, she was actually paroled and lived a normal life. She was a model prisoner. You actually met her just a couple of years ago when she was in an assisted living facility. What did you take away from that? Uh, it, it was really sad. I mean, when you see Carol... Uh, and, and you know the story, and I, I, I knew her so well at that point that she's, she, was, she had suffered a stroke and she had been in a car accident. And she's in a nursing home and she's not doing real well. She can't talk very clearly. Uh, you just say, to you, it's just like she's, she and her life is a tragedy upon a tragedy upon a tragedy. She's a very sad human being when you look at, at her entire life and, and where she is now. Hmm. Harry McLean is the author of the new book, Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me.